0: Welcome to Attune, an audio narrative anthology brought to you by the Yale Daily News. In order to stay in tune with others, we bring you compelling narratives about the everyday and the extraordinary, stories of human interaction and relationships. In this series, you'll hear student-produced short stories, plays, and poetry, as well as voice talent and original soundtracks by both Yale students and alumni. Whether you're listening on a drive or in quarantine, while making dinner or taking a walk, by yourself or with friends, we hope this collection of stories brings everyone a little closer together. Today, you'll be hearing two short stories and two poems. The first short story is titled, A Dirtbag Cleans House. It was written and read by Josh Brockmeyer. For those who would like to follow along as they listen, There's a link in the episode description to all the written work included. Turn your thoughts to the story of a man who made a home out of his grandmother's old Lexus so he could indulge in a summer of outdoor exploration.
1: Last August, I tore apart my home. To start, I opened the hatchback. For the past three summers, I lived in a black Lexus, my grandma's old car. Like a kid told to clean his room, I kept everything hidden under my bed, a 32 inch wide plywood platform. Out of sight, out of mind. The closet was above the back right wheel clean, okay, cleanish shirts in a plastic tote, dirty clothes in a duffel bag. The kitchen and pantry bins were stacked by the rear passenger door. Coffee and spices rested on top. The library, a brown milk crate, sat within reach of my bed. Rivers of Empire, Water, Aridity, and Growth in the American West. The Exploration of the Colorado River and its Canyons. The Guide's Guide. Reflections on Guiding Professional River Trips. One family vacation, I went whitewater rafting. Our guide recruited every middle schooler on the trip. When you're in college, you should be a raft guide. I listened. After freshman year, I moved to Glenwood Springs, Colorado, to live out my dirtbag fantasies. I drove to Glenwood. I planned to pitch a tent for the summer, but the cheapest campsite I could find, a square of dirt next to a latrine, was $500 a month, more expensive than apartment prices back home in Nebraska. So I camped in my car. The first summer, I didn't have a bed frame, so I slept on the slightly tilted, folded-down seats and spooned with the wheel well. The second summer, I made my bed. Luxury sleeping arrangements for $50 in plywood and 2 by Ten of us slept in the boathouse parking lot. We were the company's homeowners association. We had the finest sleeping arrangements our rent, cleaning the bathrooms one night a week, could provide. HOM membership perks included access to showers or a river bath, whichever was warmer. Our homes were parked 20 yards from the railroad tracks. Officially, to bypass zoning regulations, we were security. One day, my younger sister called. I told her about my living situation. She began to tell friends and family members he's homeless. I disagreed. My bed was 72 inches long. I am 74 inches tall my toes hung over the edge. There was a three-inch gap between my shoulder and the ceiling. To wake with a start meant to start my day with a headache. I'd never slept better. As guides, we worked seven days a week, two or three trips a day. Up by eight, load the boats, safety speech, bus ride, down the river, rapids, canyon, flat water, hopefully, earn tips. Load the next trip, tie down the boats, eat, sunscreen, bus ride, down the river, rapids, canyon, flat water, hopefully, earn tips, work's done, surf the kayak wave, nap, shower, go out to eat, stumble back home, sleep, repeat. At home, my brother and I have always shared a room, lights on and off at any time, doors thrown open and slammed shut, elaborate Lego towns sprawling across the floor. There was a three-foot gap between our twin-sized beds. When he was little, my brother would wake up at five in the morning and begin to whisper, John, are you awake? He repeated that in a hissy voice, a whisper trying to be loud, until I was, indeed, awake. In Glenwood, my car, my black solar-collecting metal box of a home, didn't cool down until 1 a.m. I slept with the windows open. Occasionally, I woke up to raindrops and wind blowing on my face. Peanut butter for breakfast, canned meat for lunch. Bears were a concern, drunk raft guides were an annoyance. But I could go to bed whenever I wanted. I woke up to the sun shining in my face, not to my brother's are-you-awake inquisition. I got to decorate. Would I rather stare at a life jacket or a climbing rope as I fell asleep? my car was a place of my own. I cleaned my car on the driveway of my parents' house. A summer's worth of dirt and disorder emerged during deconstruction. I hurried. Fall semester started in a few days. You better not leave any of the stuff for me to clean up, my mom said. But she did help with the mountains of laundry and the holes in my pants. As usual, I allotted too little time to adapt from floating on the river to studying in the library. Out came an electric blue Paco pad, my great-grandma's polyester quilt, three-quarters of a George Washington costume, a short, stubbed nose, marbled red-and-white kayak, and my ancient lucky yellow paddle that probably contains carcinogenic chemicals according to the state of California. I vacuumed until I couldn't see any more Colorado dust. The car was empty. The odor was the last thing to go. I spent many nights in my car, at the trailhead, surrounded by cows, cocooned in seven inches of snow, hidden in a supermarket parking lot. Usually I'm nervous. Will someone see me? Am I allowed to be here? What if someone tries to break in? I don't feel that way in Glenwood. I have friends nearby. The train horn lulls me to sleep. Last summer, right before leaving Glenwood, I went to music in the park. Glenwood is a touristy mountain town, but music in the park is always a locals event. The raft guide sat on a grassy hill. My rookie year, the guides were the only people I knew, but after three summers rafting, a fall at the DA's office, and a winter instructing skiers that had changed, A rookie guide asked me how I knew so many people. I don't know, I replied. I've just been around town. I walked around the park for most of the evening. I talked to a teacher I knew. His student, a girl he interpreted for, just graduated. Firefighter Jesse talked to me about the wildfire season. I felt like my dad, walking around a small town, talking and talking about everything and nothing all at the same time.
0: Our next story is entitled, For a Friend Who is at a Distance. It was written and read by Isabel Thomas. In this piece, observing a passing cyclist and walker sends the narrator on an introspective journey about the meaning of friendship.
2: Today, for the second time since I've been here, I caught sight of the same pair of teenagers on their way home from school. The first time I saw them, I'd been lingering at the kitchen window of our apartment in East Rock, admiring the last fleeting days of summer, and debating whether to make myself a snack before dinner. The sight of them gave me pause. That time, I even lazily made a joke about one of them to my roommates, a failed attempt to deflect how captivating the scene was. This time, though, I almost physically ran into them earlier this afternoon as I was on my second walk of the day, chatting distractedly with my younger sister on the phone. I don't remember seeing them before they were less than half a block away from me, and when I did spot them, I lost track of what my sister was giggling about as she ran errands back home. Her reception was spotty, but I was hoping the conversation would continue for fear of having nothing to do as they passed me. The pair seemed to have been in a lazy conversation, where one was enthusiastically describing an experience from their school day, as the other biked slowly and contemplatively next to them. The bike was one made for cycling. But had been repurposed for the everyday use of a seemingly both preoccupied and attentive teenager, as so many of us are. Both of them had masks nearby but neither of them wore one. As I passed the one on the bike, still listening to the other speak, they lifted their head almost meaning my gaze. Instead though, their eyes seemed to fall on my chest and I briefly wondered if they were intrigued by the fanny pack I had slung sideways around my torso. Much like the first time I had spotted them, I was struck with a rush of what I wish I had, there was something both kind and impractical about the one on the bike, moving the pedals thoughtfully next to the other on the foot. Afterwards, I found myself listing all the people I would bike slowly next to if they asked me to. Both my sisters, of course. Friends from high school who had kept their promise of forever friendship. My parents, even though they would insist that I walk the bike instead. A few friends from college who made it clear early on they do the same for me. Any woman of color who felt like they needed it a handful of boys I had a crush on during my first year, and you. I wondered if the sight of me biking slowly next to you would feel the same way to a stranger as the pair of teenagers felt to me. Would the onlooker distractedly glance at us, smiling in that way that strangers do when they want to compliment someone but don't know how, or would they secretly wish that the roles were reversed, that it was me on foot and you on the bike? That first time in the kitchen, I found myself caught up in the pure logistics of the situation. Had the one on foot not asked the other to dismount? If it were you and me, you wouldn't hesitate to, right? Would I have been able to balance for so long at such a slow pace? But you would put your hand out to steady me before I fell. You always do. Was there a desire to break the conversation to glide unhindered down with me? Would you have wanted me to leave you behind? But what held my attention the second time was entirely different. All summer, I simultaneously admired and envied every cyclist that sped by my family on our weekend walks. Or just me, as I ran alone every other muggy July morning. I wondered vaguely what it'd be like to dress entirely in fitted spandex and ride completely bent forward, soaring into the calm summer breeze. But when it comes down to it, neither the speed nor the attire makes me wish I was one of them. It's really just the idea of pushing one pedal after the other, occasionally being able to pull my hands back from the handlebars, trusting my balance, and looking over at you as you're completely entrenched in the telling of your story. But here in East Rock this September, you, like most sophomores, have stayed home, and I use my roommate's hybrid to get around. Although I'm slowly gaining confidence, I don't have nearly enough balance for what we have in mind. And when I told you about all this, the other night when we were on the phone, you responded just as I'd hoped you would. Oh, to have a walk-bike friendship.
0: Next up is a poem called Autumn Walk at Beechwood Farms. It was written by Yale alum Judith Sanders and is read by Molly Hill. You'll hear original music composed by Antoine Christo. This piece explores how putting a name to images and sensations allows us to hold on to memories and linger in a state of nostalgia.
3: said, name the world. So I said, I call this a spangle tree. How about, you said, a rose-hued spangle tree? That's beautiful, I said. Let's name the world together. No, you do it, you said. What's this? And held up a leaf. Red, three fingers. Red mitten leaf, I said. And that? Golden grain, mop-top grass, chewberry bush, a dongle hopper. How about this feeling, I said. Can you name it? Can you name this sunlit chill, the meadow brown and gold, the crunch and crackle of the leaves we shuffle through, old friends rarely together? Can you name how we remember being here with sons now grown, tossing pebbles in the water, here with that botanist who won your heart by naming every plant, even the water weeds. What do you call it? What would he call it? When we share tea on a bench and homemade bread with apple butter. When the trail is closed because deer are being hunted with bow and arrow. Name the leaves dying around us, bees probing skeletons of flowers, deer pierced nearby. Name slipping on wet leaves, name how I catch you. Name me saying, lean on my arm, name me not saying you should wear better shoes. Name how the plants are beautiful in old age, like our mothers, hair white as milkweed, skin speckled with seeds. Name how we cocooned in their leaves, how their stalks bent yet held when we flew away. Name it, name it all using only one word, a word you search for, a word you build out of leaves and air, out of memories and forgetting, out of together and apart. Come next November, will we remember this cascade of bare branches if we cannot now find its name? So name it, you said. Name it with names more beautiful than the real names.
0: Our final piece is another poem by Judith Sanders titled Snowstorm Dragball. It is read by Noah Parnes. Get ready to marvel at a glamorous personification of a winter storm.
4: Monday to Friday, the city played it straight, all work shirts and steel-toed boots. The sun levered up and down, colorless as a light bulb. Clouds sat there, jowly and glum, till they lumbered off, heavy as trucks. Concrete predominated. So did brick and asphalt. Streets bored themselves, uniformed like waiters or nuns. Geometry ruled. Angles cut, not a curve in sight. A sparrow in a house dress noodled in dirt. Lawns lacked haircuts. Weeds crumpled like stubbed cigarettes. Trees stood stiff in turtlenecks, branches forked in fractals. Scars scuttled behind a curtain, ashamed of shining. Saturday, leaflets dropped from the sky, everybody in white tonight. They turned out in glitter and feathers, glossy in satins, flaunting their frills. The wind led the dancing with a wolf whistle and an ooh Bushes and petticoats shook their hips, vines undid their corsets and swung. Trees tossed platinum tresses, waved their arms over their heads. Somebody veiled the stop signs. Somebody flung fistfuls of confetti. A roof's slip slid down. Pillars looked spectacular in negligees. Berries balanced turbans. Lawns lounged on spangled capes. Drainpipes twirled ropes of pearls. Gutters dangled icicle earrings. Lamp posts batted lashes. Thistles swished painted nails. Ibby spruces looked adorable in tutus, stumps sported Sunday chapeau. Mounds of leaves revealed their cleavage, puddles plated cool in mirror shade. Sticks slid on silk stockings, hydrants winked under berets, sidewalks burst out in lame, cars looked fabulous in mink. Twigs wore lace, flower pots pulled on ruffled pantaloons. A picket fence was a chorus line, shoulder to shoulder in busbies. Windshields slathered eyeshadow, bumpers trailed rabbit fur stole, trash cans tipped felt fezes, patio furniture padded its curves. The cherry tree was a diva, glamorous in velvet and gloves. Flakes like flocks of sequins flashed, under street lamps gone strobe. Monday morning, it was over. Wigs and boas in the closet. Back to suits and denim, scrubs and aprons, rulers and rules, crosswalks and meters. Word went out, next ball's in April, stock up now on pinks and purples. Till then, warned the wind,
2: button up.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of A Tune, the second episode of our fourth season. It was produced by Sophia Lee, Laura Palacio-Londono, Mitchell Davis, Liana Schmitter-Emerson, as well as me, Elena Unger. I'm Elena, your host for today. This episode was sound engineered by Laura Palacio-Londono, Liana Schmitter-Emerson, and me, Elena Unger. Our intro and outro theme is written by Sharon Nong, Special thanks to Simia Lauren and Andrea Lee, our podcast editors at the YDN. Join us again next time for more original student work, touching on themes of love, friendship, and the afterlife. From all of us at Attune, thank you for listening and have a great day.